All right, we're going to be in Matthew 22. So if you have a Bible, and I really encourage you to have one during the hour if you need one. We have some on the table over here. Matthew chapter 22 is uh, the text that we'll examine together in just a moment as we think about a party not to be missed. How many of you have had a few parties or you have a few parties to, that, are, that are coming up? Yeah? Yeah, we've got a few party animals out here. So... Um, uh, I actually missed a party last night because I was at our own dessert theater. I, I don't know how many I invited, something between 16 and 20 friends to come be a part of dessert theater. And only three of my friends could actually come because they all had parties. And some uh, have bemoaned uh, how many parties that they have to go to over this season. Uh, in fact, I heard one lady say, I've got four parties I've got to go to. I'm hosting one. That's five. And my son's having his birthday party this month. Can I just play sick and skip the whole month? So I don't if you ever felt that way. Uh, but in in the face of all that, obviously, uh, they're supposed to be celebratory. They're supposed to be uh, opportunities for us to connect with one another in a meaningful kind of way. And they get skewed and busted and broken and crazy stuff happens. And uh, that's why we have some of the attitudes that we have about parties. We're, t- we're talking today about a party, though, that you really don't want to miss. What about if God threw a party and invited you? You don't want to miss that party. And as we get into talking about that today, we do so. Uh, as we understand, we're, we're going to be examining a parable. The New Testament is filled with stories that Jesus told that are referred to as parables. Parables, as we have been saying over these weeks, are a different kind of story. They are a story that is usually taken right out of a typical scenario out of life. But given an extraordinary kind of meaning so that you begin to understand or perceive something about God. As well as perceive and understand something about yourself. And in the Gospel of Matthew, there are ten parables that are specifically about the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew collects several of these parables of Jesus, puts them all together in a certain kind of way to convey a certain kind of message under the banner of the kingdom of heaven. And you know that one of these parables fits what Matthew's uh, doing with Jesus' stories because they all begin the same way. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then you get into the story. Now, last time we were talking about how these parables can serve as a mirror to us, show us something internally about ourselves that we might not have picked up otherwise. Uh, So some uh, of these parables are, are filled with insight like that. Some of the parables are humorous. Some of the parables are mysterious. And they cause us to scratch our head and wonder. Some of the some of the parables are disturbing. And today's parable is one of those that disturbs. Who's up for being disturbed today? Okay. Here we go. And we're into Matthew chapter 22. So hopefully you have that text. You're going to read that with us in just a moment. But before we do so, I have to give you some context. Okay? 
As we get into chapter 22, we have just followed what? Chapter 21. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. So here's the context. In chapter 21, there's a couple of other parables that precede this kingdom parable. And the first one is a parable of two sons. If you have your Bible open, you can just kind of scan back. We're not going to read it. But uh, Jesus is meeting with priests and Pharisees and religious leaders. And they are questioning him in light of his teaching, which has been teaching with this authority beyond anything they've ever seen before. And they're like, who, are, who do you think you are? Where do you get such authority to speak to us the way that you speak to us? And Jesus said, well, you know what? I'll answer that question when you answer me my question. What about John the Baptist? Was he of God or not? Well, they didn't want to answer that question because if they'd said, yes, he's of God, then Jesus would have said, well, then why don't you do what he said? And if they'd said, no, he's not of God, then all the people that were gathered around at this particular point who had believed John's message would have been upset with their religious leaders. And so they didn't want to answer that question. They said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not going to answer your question by what authority do I do what I do. But I will tell you this story. A father had two sons. And to one son, he said, go and do this. And the son said, yes, I will. But then he didn't. The second son, the father said, go and do that. And he said, no, I won't. But he later repented and he went and did what his father had asked. Which of the two sons obeyed the father? Well, even a grade school child would have gotten that one. And it was the second son, the one that actually obeyed and did something that the father had asked. And Jesus said to these religious leaders, these priests... And Pharisees, so you are in that first group, and that's why tax collectors and harlots are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Because they may have initially said no, but they now, because of John and because of what I'm saying to them, they're now repenting. They're now turning their hearts toward God. They're not now becoming obedient and in alignment with God while you continue over here saying your yes, but never doing what God is asking you to do. Then he promptly moves right into another story. He said, let me, let me tell you this one. There was a landowner who had a vineyard. And he hired out the vineyard to a bunch of tenants, tenant farmers. And then he went off to a far country. And when the harvest time came and they began to bring in all the produce and they began to make their money, the faraway landowner sent some of his servants back to the tenant farmers and said, I want my fees. I want my money out of what you've been generating by working my land. And they not only said no and refused the landowner's request via his servants, but then they began to beat up some of those servants and they killed some of those servants. And so the landowner said, we will settle this once and for all. And so he takes his son, sends his son back to this tenant farming situation to clear up the whole mess. And they kill the son. And Jesus said, this is the reason 
that the kingdom of heaven is being stripped away from you. And of course, what he was saying in that story is that God is the landowner. And God had entrusted his mission and all that he was up to in this world with the Hebrew community and specifically to the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes and the other religious leaders. And when God began to call forth for them in obedience to be this or to do that, they were not only saying no, but they were treating his prophets, his messengers shamefully and sometimes killing them. And eventually God sends his son. And in this prophetic way, Jesus is saying, you'll kill him too. This is why the kingdom is being stripped away from you. That's the context. He's just told them story number one about two sons. Story number two about the wicked tenant farmers. And now we're into story number three, where we're going to be talking about a king who throws a party. So let's look at the text. Chapter 22, beginning with verse one. So again... Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off one to his farm, another to his business. And while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Well, the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go. Therefore, to these main roads, these crossroads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, I think I already gave you a clue. This parable fits the category called disturbing. Pretty disturbing, huh? As uh, most parables, we get insights into God and we get insights into ourselves. Let's talk about a few insights with respect to God for a moment. The first thing that we see out of this story is that God is generous. Because, see, in this story, the king who's going to throw the wedding feast is God. And the wedding feast is for his son, Jesus. And he has sent out invitations to those throughout Israel and to uh, the religious leaders of the Israelite community. 
as it was that uh, ancient Near Eastern custom, you would send out an invitation so that somebody could more or less put it on the calendar. They'd know it's coming so they could prepare for it themselves. And then later you would send servants to say, everything's ready. Now you can come. So it's kind of a twofold invitation, right? The first to say, here's the date and the time when it's going to happen. The second would come and say, everything's ready. All the food has been prepared. The table is set. Come. So the king throws the party. The people have been invited. Now the servants have been sent to say, it's time. Come. Nobody comes. And here we see the generosity of the king slash God in the first place throws a party and invites us. That's pretty generous. And in the second place, gives us multiple opportunities to respond. Gives us a second chance, if you will. I told you about a party. I told you that it's ready. Come on. But now the messengers, and these are to be understood as the prophets through the ages and the other spokespeople for God through the ages, are treated shamefully and some of them killed. So we see that God is both generous and patient. He keeps waiting. He keeps giving second chances. But he's also just. There's a line that you can cross with God. And the generosity and the patience are put to the side and justice prevails. And the king sends his army to those murderers and he judges them and he takes them out. Destroys their city. It's pretty disturbing. It's pretty much understood to be a reference to what would happen in A.D. 70 when the city of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. But he's not only just, he is persistent. He is going to have a party. He's going to have a feast. He is going to celebrate the son. And so he sends his servants out again to find more invitees. And this time he doesn't go to Israel. This time he goes outside of Israel. This time he goes to various Street corners. Well, who do you find on the street corners? And he says, invite them all, the bad and the good. And when he's making that kind of reference, he's talking about the bad, the tax collectors, the the prostitutes, uh, the swindlers, the cheats, the thieves, and so on like that, uh, that were referenced in chapter uh, 21. When he's talking about the good, he's talking about those that are, you know, probably more moral in their behavior But they're all busted. They're all sinful. They're all in need of redemption. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he, speaking of the king slash God, remains expectant about what his wedding guest will be like. Right? He goes out, invites people off the street corners. Come. They come. They're into the party. The festivities have begun. The king is uh, moving around the room, working the crowd, meeting people, greeting people, that kind of thing. And then he comes to a guy who's not wearing a wedding garment. Now, this is one of those passages that's disturbing to a lot of people because 
the way you read that in the English was that the king comes up on this guy and he says, you're not wearing a wedding garment. Why are you not wearing a wedding garment? And if you just read the text, you go, well, because he was just taken off of the street corner. (laughs) Who has time to go home and change clothes? But you have to remember, when you're talking about parables, they're not like full-blown stories that have every detail accounted for. They're kind of truncated. They're kind of shrink-wrapped, if you will, so that they get to the point. They get to the punch real quickly. And the way that you get the clue on that is the word in English, in my version, the English Standard Version, that's translated, you're not wearing a wedding garment. Literally, in the Greek language, is a passive verb. And a passive verb means something was done to you rather than you did something, right? And so literally, the way that phrase would read is, what are you doing here not garmented? Not attired, having been attired for the wedding. You catch the difference on that? The point being, the king had provided garments for every guest that had been brought in off the street corners. He had provided the garments. It wasn't like they had garments to go home to and find and change into. And the point is this. In the king's feast... We're to understand this is God, uh, the Father with God, the Son in the heavenly realm that someday we get to, to translate and move over into glory. And those that enter into that state fully described in the, the book of Revelation will be there in the righteousness of Christ. That's our wedding garment. He gives us his Righteousness. The theological word for that is that he imputes. He puts on us his righteousness. It comes, uh, the imagery comes right out of this parable where when you're invited to his wedding feast, he clothes you appropriately for that gathering. And the, the garment is righteousness. Now, let me be clear. Righteousness is not something that you and I can achieve. You can't be good enough. You can't have the checklist long enough and enough of the marks marked off. That's not what righteousness is about. Righteousness is about you giving your life to God, saying yes to his invitation. And in that transaction, you give him your life. He gives you Jesus's righteousness. He imputes it. He puts it on you. If I can just say it this way, it's like Jesus took off his own wedding garment, his own righteousness, and then put it on you. His character he put in you. His way of thinking, his perspective on life, his sense of connection and communion with the Father. He put all that on you when you gave your life to him. So it kind of raises the question, have you heard the invitation? Do you know that that's what Christmas is all about? You see, this matter of incarnation, where God leaves glory, 
takes flesh upon himself and becomes one of us, incarnating himself. Incarnation is all about invitation. It's all about him coming to us and saying, come to me. Do you get that? So that when we sing all these carols and when we go to all these parties and when we gather for communion by candlelight on Christmas, it's all about his invitation, his invitation, his invitation. And whether or not I've said yes to that invitation. And in that transaction of saying yes, I have been imputed with his righteousness. I have been clothed with his Wedding garment. That's the good news. I could never have the wedding garment on my own. My only hope of ever having the wedding garment and being able to stay in glory, stay in his, you know, inmost presence is that he would clothe me with righteousness. And so you go, well, you know, um, I think I get that part. Right? I'm just not sure whether I have had that transaction. I'm not sure whether that righteousness is like really on my life. How do you know that? When Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you, implanted in you, it changes your life. You cannot stay the same. And so the way the Bible describes it is the evidence that His righteousness has been imputed to you, is that you now have His character. You now love like Jesus. You now give like Jesus. You now forgive like Jesus. You now sacrifice yourself and serve others like Jesus. You now have a worldview and a world perspective like Jesus. And if all those changes are not taking place for you, then I would seriously question myself. And that's the point where you look at itself. Do I have the Jesus life in me? Have I just kind of been culturally on snooze about the gospel and the Christmas story Uh, You know, I know about the stable. I know about the manger. I know about the characters and Joseph and Mary and all that kind of stuff. I know about the songs. I go to the parties and just kind of on snooze right through. This is about a transformed, altogether different life so that heaven is not just then and there, but here and now. If you're not already having a foretaste of heaven here and now, you probably don't have it there and then. That's the point. So we know what God is like. Generous. Patient. Inviting you. Inviting you. Inviting you, inviting you. But just, there's a line at which all that will end. Invitation's gone. Time to settle the accounts. Expectant. That if you are going to be a follower of His, 
you will have a changed life. So, will you? Will you believe the Christmas story? Not just that Jesus was born. Historians believe that. But that Jesus is God, sent on a mission to find us, invite us, transform us, and bring heaven to us. Will you believe that? Will you accept that invitation? It's one thing to get it. It's another thing to receive it, to live it, to be transformed by it. Will you give your life to Him? Will you allow Him to do everything that heaven plans to do in you? That's the invitation. Let's pray. So, Father, we've not only been disturbed today, but we're sobered right now. Because some of us in the room are religious, but we're not changed. We're very familiar with Christianity, but we're not redeemed. We're not saved. We don't have your righteousness. And so, God, I pray you would continue the disturbance in us, that we would not have rest until we turn to you, until we surrender, until we become obedient, until we have your life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.